captivating. Isn't that a great word? When someone is captivating, the audience is 100% on their side, 100% engrossed with whatever they are saying. Today, you're going to meet Jess. Jess is on a quest to become more captivating in the courtroom. You see, Jess is a criminal defense lawyer, and her ability to win over a jury can mean the difference between incarceration and freedom. But here's the thing. Jess is already a seasoned professional. She knows what she's doing. She is good at what she does, but she wants to become truly great. I love this conversation because number one, I love it when someone as accomplished as Jess seeks ways to level up. And two, the dynamics of public speaking and influence in a courtroom setting are just fascinating, as you will soon hear. The stakes are high. The content that has to be conveyed is nuanced and complicated. And the audience in a courtroom, they can range from super sophisticated and informed to unsophisticated and deeply uninformed. How on earth do you move an audience that diverse with content as nuanced and detailed as a courtroom trial? Fascinating, right? So whether you're interested in courtroom drama or not, you may be able to relate to Jess's struggle to balance nuance and complexity with the need to communicate with simplicity and emotion. I guarantee you will take something useful from this conversation. That's how rich it is. Okay, so without further ado, here's Jess. Just to start things off, what is your intention for having this conversation with me? What would make this conversation incredibly useful to you where you're like, God, that was the best hour I've ever spent in my whole life? Probably just some sort of tips or guidance to help bring me to what I think is maybe my next level of communicating ability, but also a level that feels like it will cause me to be a little bit afraid. It'll cause me to push myself. Like it'll cause me to sort of say, Ooh, I've never done it that way before. She sounds a little crazy. Am I sure this is what I want to do? (laughs) Otherwise, if it was my own idea, I'd already be doing it. You know what I mean? And I go with what's safe and familiar and comfortable. So I think it would be having you push me maybe to a different place. I love that. That's exactly what my intention is too. So we're at absolute lockstep together. And I'm going to add something to at least from my side, which is I come to this session with you with total humility because I've never ever worked with someone who is actually in a courtroom, the attorney that's actually on the line to keep the person from certain disaster. So everything I suggest to you, you get to say to me, that would never work. Or that's not how this works. Like I want you to know that I know nothing. So I'm just going to give you concepts. It's up to you to say that one doesn't resonate, but that one does. Does that make sense? Yeah, that does. I love that. Okay. So just to look at what you sent over, you said that your style tends to be that you're talking really fast. Yeah. You get really excited. Yeah. Slash nervous, which I mean, who wouldn't be in that situation? But it sounds to me like your opportunity for growth is you don't want to feel like you're dragging a massive overpacked suitcase into the front of the courtroom, opening it up and showing everybody in the suitcase, everything that's there in rapid succession. So you get everything on the table. You would like a different kind of vibe. Is that a good metaphor for what you're currently doing? Or how would you characterize your current state that you know is holding you back? 
I think my current state that's holding me back is a little bit of fear. And just to preface this, I am a criminal defense lawyer and I practice primarily in federal court, which is a bit more formal of an environment. Judges tend to limit us a bit. We're supposed to stay near our podium, whereas in state court or on TV, you see lawyers marching around the courtroom, waving their hands, are Mm -hmm. constrained a bit more by the judges. And that is something Mm -hmm. that some lawyers with a lot of confidence and experience just say, judge, I'm ignoring that. And they just go for it anyway. I'm a bit more of a rule follower, don't want to get yelled at by the judge for better or for worse. And I tend to be more... Here I am on my podium. Here are my Mm -hmm. notes. And I'd like to try to be more human. I'd like to Mm -hmm. try to move away from what I would say is more robotic. I don't feel robotic when I'm up there. Yeah, It's just that I feel I'm very wedded to what's written in those pieces of paper. And I notice, for example, that when I am picking a jury, when I'm doing jury selection, which is called voir dire, I'm great (laughs) because I'm connecting Mm -hmm. with people one-on-one. Tell me more about that. I'm asking them questions. I'm getting to know them. I'm trying to uncover their biases. I'm trying to figure out if they are the best juror for my client's case. And so I'm connecting and I'm free and I'm just having a conversation. But when I get up at the podium to either argue or do a closing or an opening, Mm -hmm. I'm much more formal. Okay. So I have a couple of perceptual questions here. So when you're in jury selection mode, though, you're connecting with them, right? It's so natural. It just flows right out of you. And I'm guessing those people, when they leave their interview with you, they're like, that was probably the most presence-filled conversation I've had all week. I'm sure you're so engaging and you listen so well. When you get in front of the judge, the jury, clients, other attorney, their client, who are you performing for? Who's your audience in that moment, in that podium? Really ask yourself, like, who are you performing for in that moment? Maybe that's where it all gets muddled because it probably should be the jury and the jury only. But I get a little, oh, my God, the other lawyers in the room are going to think I'm an idiot or the prosecutors are going to object. Although I try to put them out of my mind. I'm actually decent at putting them out of my mind. I might worry more than I should about the audience or the other lawyers. But I do really try to focus on the jury when I'm giving a closing or an opening. Got it. So when you're adhering to that rigidly to your notes, because what we're trying to do is get you out um, sort of a over-reliance on what's written down and into a place where you can cast a spell and cast it right over the jury or right over the main people you need to influence, I'm assuming it's the jury, and bring them with you to the place you want them to go. Right. You want to cast a spell. Right. And that might be this case is about reasonable doubt or this case is about a very scared person who reacted badly in a moment, but that doesn't make it criminal or whatever my story is. Yes. It is telling a story. The problem is in that moment, I get very focused on, I have to hit all of these points, all of this Mm. evidence from Mm. the trial, Mm. all of Mm. these points Mm. that I scored with witnesses, all of the things the government didn't do. There are so many pieces to that, that you have to weave into this story that you're telling. Yeah. Not to mention explaining the legal principles, which one can slap up on a slide and then freeform a bit. And that's fine. And I'm okay at that. Oh, here's the beyond a reasonable doubt standard. Let me talk to you about that, everyone. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, I get a little bogged in the details, I think. And so that's why I feel like, oh my gosh, I'm going to forget something. 
I have to read this right now. The interesting thing is, yes, those details all matter. My God, when somebody's life is on the line and the quality of their life moving forward, everything matters. But if you're having a hard time keeping track of all the details, how does your audience feel about all those details? Exactly. And coming That's a at them one. robotically yeah. with just all, here's all the stuff you all should yeah. be focusing on. I mean, clearly yeah. using visual aids is important. Hugely important. Yeah. And I don't think historically I've done enough of that. So like, what is the norm for slides in a courtroom? Is it like slide, bullet, 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 bullet? How does that work? I mean, we lawyers are not known for our technical skills or for our yeah. creativity. Right, right. Old school PowerPoint with bullet points. Sometimes there's quotes that are like tiny. I mean, I've literally seen really good lawyers put up slides that are beyond what anyone can read. You could create some real differentiation for yourself on that if you decided to dive in, which is another conversation for another day. But I think there are devices. There are systems of phrases that you can use that say a lot without saying too much. Phrases like, Look, the lens through which we want to look at this one piece of evidence is the lens of X. And while I could tell you A, B, C, and D, the real issue is Y and Z. Those are the big ones. It's like Tom Brokaw used to say, people don't just want to know what happened. They want someone to tell them what it freaking means. Yes. So that device of, yes, of course, these five things are important. Don't expect you to remember those. The two that matter the most, these two things. You cannot evaluate what anyone is saying in this case unless you hold these two things in your mind. Right. So there are devices, right? Phrases, scripts for creating the impression of like, oh, yeah, 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 this, 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 and this, but really what I need to focus on is A and B. And that allows you to kind of, you know, who frames the argument wins the argument. So what phrases do you have for that kind of thing? Or do you just literally say, I'm about to go A to Z on your ass. Buckle up, buttercup. (laughs) I don't know. I must do that. You know, I should have probably gone back and looked at some of my closings and actually looked at how do I do this. But now that you're bringing this up, that would be a helpful exercise. Because since I have written out every closing I've ever given... I can see, was I just listing off crap and expecting people to retain that in their poor brain? Yes. Or was I actually doing a fair amount of broadcasting, transitioning and that kind of thing? And I don't know. I mean, I don't know. And the best way to simplify and simplify and simplify is to say, can they repeat if X, then Y, when I stop talking? If they can't repeat if X, then Y, I'm out. Like I have a glove doesn't fit. You must have. It's a freaking glove doesn't fit. I mean, and this is what I'm thinking about. I think you have tremendous empathy for your client. You have tremendous respect and deference for the judge. You have a little bit of anxiety and performative nervousness around other attorney and other side, but zero empathy for your audience on the jury when you're talking at your podium. Right. That's the problem. If you had empathy for them, really, you'd be like, these four people, like one of them has a kid who's in rehab. Another one's Alzheimer's father is living at home with them. And they had to freaking find coverage. They could go to this damn jury. Right. And I'm talking to them about complicated racketeering instructions and detailed 
crap for two hours straight sometimes. Two hours. When I think about people preparing for remarks of whatever ilk, there is a workflow that involves checking off every box. And that workflow is solving for thoroughness. There is the workflow that begins and ends with the audience. And that is solving for connection. The people that are solving for thoroughness, they will never be yelled at for not being thorough, but they will never make contact with an audience the way somebody who's focused on connection does. So how might we change the way you prepare so that you are beginning? Like, is there a scenario in which you could literally cut out pictures of the jurors' faces and stick them on a board, a bulletin board, and literally look at them in the eye as you're building your remarks to keep you grounded in these people's lives? I wouldn't be allowed to take a picture of them. Oh, right. How might you begin and end with them in mind? I mean, how many people are there on a court? Is it literally 12? Like 12 mm-hmm. angry men? 12. Okay. Yeah. 12. 12 so angry humans. That's, that's 12 angry humans. Do you know who they are? Of course, you know who they are because of course I've collected them. them. Yeah. And you selected them. So right. even if you don't have pictures of them, you know these people. Yeah, you're right. Right. Okay. And by Can the way, these are 12 angry humans because I just looked at my document, my quote outline for my closing argument in this. It was a four-month jury trial in my defense. It's a racketeering case. Are you standing and just reading verbatim? I am trying not to, particularly at the beginning. In the beginning, Mm -hmm. I try to know this Mm -hmm. part down, so Mm -hmm. I can come out and be strong and feel like I'm getting their attention. This is sort of the heart of my defense and the lens through which I want them to see the facts and the evidence and and everything else. I really pause and emphasize. I'm not going a mile a minute at that point. It's when I get rolling into the nitty gritty weeds of, and then there was this piece of evidence and that piece of evidence where I think I could potentially bore them to tears, really, if I'm being honest. Well, and here's the thing. This is part of the American justice system that is so fascinating and interesting and challenging is that you have everyday American citizens that get called in to evaluate and discern complicated shit like this, right? Like racketeering. And so your job is so tricky because you have to do right intellectually by the case so that the judge goes, yep, passes the muster. Opposition goes, oh shit, she came to play ball. And also it's super digestible for the jury. Like that is, is that right? Literally the appeal, because if I failed to argue certain things or object to certain things, we may not have it on appeal. So some future lawyers looking at my work to make sure I've preserved everything properly. Yeah. Right. You're basically future proofing as you speak. Right. And bit. so you solve for that by including more than maybe the audience can take, but then at least your ass is covered from an appeals standpoint. Right. Right. Yeah. And look, that's real. That's a real issue. And I don't know. It's such an interesting perspective. But I think if I were your coach, which I am in this moment. I would be saying is instead of you sitting down to a Word document and writing down and fleshing out this whole story from A to Z, I think I would flip it and begin with the 12 people and really, I mean, let's get weird with this. Like I would want to see you in deep meditation, visualizing these people, thinking (laughs) about who they are, like 
feeling them, creating a connection at a, an energetic level with these people and literally asking yourself, if I am in their shoes, how might I make a connection to this case in a way that allows me to make sense of it? And I yeah. love your, you know, look, the government was looking for a cohesive story and they pinned it on this guy, even though it wasn't, didn't make sense or whatever. Is that what the gist of the argument was at the beginning? Yeah, it's that they had this scattered case filled with isolated crimes that were not related and they needed someone. They needed the mob boss because the jurors yeah. watched the TV and yeah, they knew they could maybe bring their cohesive disaster of a case together if they had a leader. And so they charged yeah. my client as the alleged leader of this organization. So he got dragged right on in. He got dragged right in years after the prosecution right. began to fix right. their troubled, weak case. Got it. Mind you, I lost. Well, <laughs> but like, who cares? Whatever. This is actually such a great, juicy thing to play with. So here's the thing. Do you ever open with a little lighthearted story? You can, yeah. You have a big freaking brain. And it is filled with horsepower and firepower. And your big guns want to come out and make a case strong, clear, right out the door. And that's your superpower. That's what makes you amazing. If you're in the audience, though, what makes a moment is a buildup of tension. It's the buildup of it's I'm going to connect with you first and establish that I'm a human that you can trust. And then once I make that connection, I'm going to build the tension, build the tension, bam. And now I'm going to unpack why I said what I said. Do you mm -hmm. see what I mean? Yeah. And that's what I think when you have to focus on empathy for humans, in this case, jury, what you recognize is that people, especially if they're in a courtroom, they want cinematic communication. They want cinematic. They want story. They want shit they can repeat later. And if I were you, I would build it simple, cinematic, build it up to the climax and resolve it and be like, that is a real good, wow, I like the arc of that thing. And I'm hitting on this, I'm hitting on this, I'm hitting on this. And then when you're like, this is good, I would be freaking psyched if I was a jury. I would hang in there with 45 minutes on this. That's how good it is. Then you put on your appeals hat and you go, okay, I'm going to tear this thing to its tax. Where are the holes? Where am I exposed? So what you could do from a process, a workflow standpoint, start with the story and make it really rad for the audience, start to finish, beginning, middle, end, smoking gun. And then once you have that, and you're like, that's good. Then you put on your CYA self and say, okay, if I was somebody who was going to pick this shit apart, where are the holes? Me again. The process I'm describing here is what I call bulletproofing. I wholeheartedly believe that first, we need to let our big, brave, wild, hard imaginations have their way with our outline for our remarks or our talk. Just, just allow yourself to go for it. But then we need to step outside of unicorn glitter land and into the land of skepticism because your inner critic probably has a lot of value to add and she can save your tush. Also, your big, brave heart and wild imagination will be able to really stretch their legs and brainstorm something really, truly special and fabulous if they know that their work will be bulletproofed and checked by your inner editor. You need both parts of you working. Okay, back to Jess. Or thinking right? about the government's rebuttal. 
The government goes laugh. Where are they going to attack me? Where are they yes. going to say, uh-uh-uh, yes. none of that yes. holds up. And here's why, ladies and gentlemen, they get the last word. Right. Getting to that first part is the hard part for me. What yeah, you of course discussed. it is. Yeah. Of course yeah. it is. Because it's weird. It feels weird. I mean, it really feels weird. Are you someone that when you're out with friends, you tell a story and people laugh or people are engaged? I feel weird saying yes to that question, but I think yes, actually. Of course you are. <laughs> I, don't, I don't like saying that. That feels very odd. Yes, well, that's I'm, okay. If I'm you can't say it here, Broadway. you are captivating. That's what I'm trying to say. There is a self that is captivating, knows how to tell a story. But for whatever reason, she's not allowed into this environment. Hey, it's me again. Jess is about to share with us a story of some feedback she got, some interesting feedback she got from somebody who's a friend who's, you know, those friends just like tell you like it is and they call you by your last name. We bleeped out the parts where she recounted him calling her by her last name because we're trying to protect Jess's identity here. So if you hear an awkward pause, that's what it is. Okay, let's get back to it. You know what's fascinating, Bronwyn? I just did a trial with a lawyer who I really look up to. He's older than I am. He's a Mm -hmm. nationally known death penalty lawyer. He's brilliant. And he asked me to do a case with him and I just finished it. He said to me, I want you to bring the that I was hanging out with the other night when we had dinner with our spouses because everyone listens to her. He said, sometimes you get up there and I don't know where that goes. And now my first response was like, you asshole, because he's really confident. He always tells everyone how they should do things. And I'm thinking this man is kind of trying to tell me what to do or mansplain my, you know, I'm a lawyer. I'm 53 years old. I've got this. He was right though. And I knew he's he right. was right. And I knew he was right. And that's why it almost bugged me because sometimes the truth hurts a little. Oh, it pisses you off. Like Lori right. Steiner. You're like, wait a minute. He's right. Shoot. I tend to be able to tell a story, no problem, start to finish, details. I don't need notes. I don't need to practice it. Admitted being in court is harder, but yeah, yeah. But he's right. Getting up and just focusing on connecting and not context, mind you, he was focusing on my cross-examination of witnesses because mm-hmm. his point was this witness actually isn't really our enemy. You need to bring out the truth yeah. and you need to yeah. you need to make her comfortable. And then yes. she'll say what we need because we know what the truth is. And we just have to get yes. her. You are going to be the master at drawing her out. I know yep. you can do it because I've seen you do it yeah. in a restaurant and, you know, but bring it yes. into the courtroom. This begs the question, which is at the heart of so much of the work I do with people, which is which self are we freaking talking about? I know. And he's talking about the integrated self. He right. wants your whole self. And listen, let's really call a spade. In a patriarchal system, women are told, not even told directly, implicitly, we are taught that when we go into the boys' rooms, we better freaking have our shit together. And yes, exactly right. And what I've noticed, and this is a whole other topic, is that sadly, sexism is alive and well in courtrooms. And so I find myself often having to speak quickly and making sure I've got it because the judge will often cut me off, but they'll let a man go on and on and on. And so I find myself becoming a faster talker and trying to pack in my sentences. Now, this is not from a jury. This is when I'm arguing to a judge. Yeah, because I literally don't get as much airtime, and that yeah. sounds yeah. like I'm just whining. And 
No, but it's the great way it lawyer. is. But it's, it's real. It is. I've, I've it's real. It. Yeah. No, it's that real. doesn't surprise me in the slightest. So all that to say that there is a reason you are not bringing integrated self to the front of the room. And it is because of patriarchy. It's because of the training you got as you came up through the world. There are millions of reasons. Who cares? The point is, how do you bring integrated self forward? What I find is that the only thing that's keeping that self from going forward in front of the room is the story you are telling yourself about where you are and who is there with you. If you tell yourself, I'm going in to argue a high profile federal case with person A, jury B, yada, asshole judge who I know is a jerk, so-and-so McGillicuddy across the aisle, that story is going to trigger girding your loins. It's going to trigger battle. It's going to trigger buttoning up and clenching and white knuckling. So the job, which is not easy, it is not easy, but it's literally the job is to replace that thinking with different thinking. My method with people, which may not be yours, you can come up with something better, is to just work with mantras. For example, if I were in your ear and you're walking up, you're approaching the freaking witness that you're going to cross-examine, we're not thinking about cross-examining a witness. We are thinking to ourselves, my job is to remind her that the situation is the enemy, not she and I. My job is to remind her that we're on the same side because all we care about is the truth. And when you're pumping us, we messages through your mind, you're going to talk to her like you're we. If you pump us versus them messages, I got to manipulate this bitch and get her to say what I want her to say. That's going to come through. Actually, I think you're right. The former mentality, even if you are trying to sort of navigate and guide. Right. I'm not going to get them to agree with me. Yeah. If they see me as the enemy. So that is the thing that I think is your biggest opportunity is to really determine who is the self you want walking into that courtroom and how do you create workflows for developing remarks that honor the empathy and the connection you're making with that jury while also bulletproofing the remarks for all these other things you have to do. And then what is your pregame ritual for calling up your whole self? I mean, there is a fair amount of taking deep breaths that occurs. Very smart. I will admit that in my car on the way to the federal courthouse, I played Pat Benatar all fired up on repeat. Do you know that is my favorite fucking Pat Benatar song of all time? I mean, I have several, but that one is up there on the list for me. And also Invincible. I was playing both of those songs, which is embarrassing to admit this, but I was playing those in my car driving to Yes, because it, and then I would turn it off and I would start practicing my opening spiel in the car. I would say it out loud. So I was doing it without notes. But why am I doing that in the car? I mean, maybe one should be doing that a tad bit earlier, one might argue. It could be, but that part of your system seems killer to me. (laughs) Seems absolutely killer to me. The only thing that's missing is I want you to visualize deep connection between you and whomever you need to influence. If that day is about cross-examination, you're just literally visualizing the person you want to make contact with. And I want you to visualize the outcome you're looking for and visualize yourself creating the vibe you're after and see that movie so 
effing clearly in your mind that when you approach them, you've already seen the movie and you're like, oh, this is my long lost person. Gosh, I wish I'd talked to you before my last trial, but in that case, it was really challenging for me because it was the first time I'd ever had a judge really not like me. And and look, in my profession, if you focus on who likes you and who doesn't like you, you're so, yeah. But I had grown up in the federal Mm -hmm. system. I knew judges, Mm -hmm. I'd worked for judges and I had this sense that of course judges like me. And when she didn't, it was really hard. And I wish rather than showing up in that courtroom with, she's the enemy and I'm going to get a word in edgewise today and I'm going to show her today. If I come in with a more of this mindset of I'm going to try to connect with her. She's not my enemy. Yep. Maybe I would have diffused it in a way where she could have come around. I don't know. I'll never know. Hey, it's me again. Just a quick thought for you. Not sure who out there needs to hear this, but dot, dot, dot. No one is universally liked. (laughs) There are going to be people out there who just don't like you. Maybe you remind them of their ex-boyfriend or stepmother. Listen, here's what I want you to know. If you realize that someone doesn't like you, move on. Focus on doing your very best at that moment and do it with as much grace and warmth as you can muster, but move on. And that advice holds for people that we have to deal with in short bursts. If your boss doesn't like you and is actively trying to deposition you and throw you under the bus, that's a different conversation. And you should really check out my YouTube channel because there's a whole lot of content on that. It's youtube.com forward slash this is Bronwyn. Okay, back to the conversation. But I think that's right. Whether or not it would have changed her outcome, it would have changed your vibe, which is what everybody else in the room is watching. I know. I was getting that's all the thing. fun out by it. Yes. Right? And when we get into an arms race like that, it can feel really invigorating and it feels like the right thing to do. But what ends up happening is the audience watches these two people going out, especially if it's two women. Right. And all they can focus on is that they're not even paying attention to the content anymore. Right. Right. They're just watching the dynamic. But listen, I have had situations like that where I remember I worked with someone who just she just didn't like me and she was doing everything she could to deposition me and to weaken everything I was doing. And it was so painful and so outrageous and so inappropriate and so such bullshit, but she was the client. She had all the power. I had no power, right? This is the judge. She had all the power. She has all the power. She has all the power. So at that point, what the opportunity is to just accept, this has nothing to do with me, hate the game, not the play. You know, this is the barrels, rotten barrel, not the apple's fault. I mean, who knows what her journey was to make her such a pain in the ass. The lens we're thinking about is I just need the jury to identify with me. Right. And to be on my side, which means you're going to be like, okay, I wasn't finished making my point, but clearly you've got bigger bridges to burn here or whatever. Like maybe there's some phrases you can like get together with friends the night before and be like, what are my good phrases for like keeping her at bay, having boundaries, but also being somebody that the jury likes. Right. Does right. that make sense? Yeah. So that to me, when I think about your journey and who you're going to step into, some of the people I work with, it's about becoming this higher future self that they have to construct because she doesn't exist yet. You don't have that. All your work is integrating the self, Mm -hmm. bringing together the pieces into a cohesive, solid entity that 
can get out of her own way and focus on having empathy for the audience and letting that self plan the remarks from the audience's standpoint and then bringing in the part of yourself that is so fucking on it that knows how to keep the trains on time, get her in to poke holes in the, the remarks that your integrated self did because she's a great CYA mechanism. So you're running content through the different prisms of who is already in you. Does that make sense? It does. It really does make sense. Okay. I'm sensing like some, not skepticism, but like, how does that actually work? What is your inner dialogue right now? My inner dialogue is probably saying, yes, I need to use more mantras and I need to really start from where you're talking about because that's not where I start from. So that I, yeah. is very concrete for me and feels like absolutely that could be a major game changer. There's yeah. also the part of me that says, yeah, but how do I, <laughs> yeah. I'm back to my, how do I actually get up there and how would and I deliver it? Well, how would I deliver without detailed notes with everything written? Yeah. Down? I mean, yeah. that's the part that I think I'm still oddly. That's the part that stresses with. you out because well, I don't listen. know how I'd ever remember all of that ever. Well, that's um, where PowerPoint is. Track. Yeah. That's where PowerPoint is your best friend. Right. You have prompts. And the trick is, and I know that attorneys and lawyers do not use like pretty pictures in PowerPoint. That's fine. But you want to be able to click a bullet so that they're not racing ahead of your remarks and reading ahead of you. It's like one bullet at a time so that you control the rate at which they consume information. The way I would see it is that there are movements and passages, just like in music. There's the chorus and then there's the bridge. And the, you know what I mean? Like there are different sections. What I want to encourage you to think about is there's the ethos sections where you're like, you've memorized a really strong couple of lines that you just love doing. And you're memorizing those and you're like, that's what this is really all about. But let's, you know what, let's look at the details. Like what matters here? That's when you pull up a PowerPoint slide and you have three bullets. Right. Then you might go into the chorus, which is, I'm going to tell you another story that really sticks with me about this case, blah, blah, blah. Back to the slides. That story becomes the frame for these three pieces. Do you see what I'm saying? Right now, you're working with a mono note. You are literally in the key of E for two hours, right? Like we love E. Completely horrifying. Yeah. Right. And the other thing is, this goes back to the mantra in some ways. Why am I not? I mean, I should have a mantra that says, "I know this case better than anyone in the room." That's right. Because then my confidence that I know it hopefully will chip away at the little voice that's saying, you have to memorize all this. You don't know it. You have to memorize. You have to memorize. You have to read. You have to. Yes. But I I tend to forget that simple fact, which is, of course, I know the case better than anyone in the room. It's my case. It's your case. And nobody cares about it. more. That's the part that people are buying when they buy your services is like, not only do you know the case, you give all the fucks about the case. All the fucks. I give all my heart. I probably put more of myself into it than I should, yes. right? I care so yes. deeply about a client and about yeah. the case. There's no phoning it in. There's no, oh, well, people, I mean, can we talk about the cocktail party questions I get? Like, that's an aside, but like, oh God, how do you know. represent them when you know they're guilty? I mean, if oh, one sh- more person asks me that question, I'm going to. Uh, oh my God. It's like, what do you mean? Let's talk about keeping the system fair. Let's talk about sometimes people are falsely accused. <laughs> Let's talk about 
Also, even like making sure that the law works, even for the guilty, that's a just system, right? Like just, yeah, checks and balances on the system. There's lots of things that are important. Unbridled government power. I mean, there's all sorts of answers to that question and I won't bore you with them, but it's not a question of, oh, they're guilty anyway. No, it is. Can the government prove its case? And my point is, here's why they cannot. And if we're Uh getting all the way to trial, I believe that. This is not, you know, again. This is, I believe deeply in this defense and in this person. Yes. And their life is worth fighting for. But I have to channel that self rather than the self that says, what if I forget that they didn't prove element three of this particular jury? And that's that's very important too. Let's be clear. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing. That's actually a question I have for you. Let's pretend like you have your next case and you build this narrative arc right? Where you're grabbing the jury's attention at the very beginning with something interesting, whether it's a story or an observation, something vivid and interesting that like relaxes them and makes them think they're having dinner with you. And you're telling a really interesting story. Let's say you start with that and then you build the tension and build the tension. Then like, boom, this just powerful moment. And then you resolve it. And it's so awesome. You're like, God damn, that would make for good television. Yes. Then let's say you invite your more linear thinking self. Is it easy or is it possible to predict with about 80 or 90 degree accuracy what somebody could poke holes in it from an appeals standpoint? Like when I give a talk, my process is I'll like swing for the fences. I'll just go nuts. I'll just do the thing that feels like performance art while also doing the thing that the client needs. And then my other self comes in and says, okay, Anybody in the room who's skeptical is going to have issue with these five things. And I address them and make sure that they make sense from that skeptic's point of view. Is that possible when you think about it through the lens of an appeals? Or is it just so gigantic you couldn't possibly Um, predict all the things? Well, at that moment, I'm actually more thinking about the government's rebuttal argument, which is going to happen immediately Uh after I sit down. And so I can predict the points that they are going to highlight in their case that they think are the strongest points. I can tell because of the way they've ask their witnesses questions, what they said in their opening statement. I mean, you can just tell. And I can think in my mind about, Mm -hmm. and I try to do this obviously as a trial lawyer, am I giving my jury enough credit if I ignore their potential reaction, which is, wait, what? Yeah. Help me understand why you think this person would have run away for that long. Yeah. You have to think through really what is real, what resonates, what is an argument that has credibility, not just what can I possibly say no, say, ladies and gentlemen, they didn't prove it, right? I have that yeah. credibility, I guess is what I'm trying yes. to say. Yes. Well, you have to move them emotionally so that they're like, yes, I will adopt that point of view. I feel connected to what she just said. Right. I mean, that's what we know about neuroscience. We make decisions emotionally first and then logic runs in to explain the decision we've already made. Mm-hmm. And that's not opinion. That is literally neuroscience. So if you think about it from that standpoint, if your argument is, well, there's no bias, they didn't prove the case, that's not going to fly emotionally with that group. It's just not. Like, it's not anything that they can relate to. Even if it may be true, right? Even if that actually may be true. true, There has to be, there's a bigger story. There's more to this. There's more that's wrong with the government's case. And it has to resonate somehow. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And that's what anchoring and audience empathy does is it forces you to sit in their very uncomfortable juror chair and feel their hunger pangs and how they wish they'd had another cup of coffee and construct something with all of that in mind. Because the current document state is 
perfect. Almost like it reminds me of when I have clients that are, I'm like, Jesus, God, what were you thinking? Like this is a hundred slide deck full of tiny font, blah, blah. You made an audience sit through that? How come? Well, because the people that get emailed the deck later who weren't able to be there need to have the same experience. No. Wait, right. what? <laughs> you just condemned your live audience to some busted ass reading audience? Like, absolutely not. And that's a very extreme example of this impulse but, to over-communicate. But quite an apt analogy to my world because... Yeah. By including every single thing and poking holes in every single jury instruction and talking about every single detail, I am focusing on the later audience, which is the court of appeals, or, or I don't know what I'm focusing on actually in yes. that moment, because my argument doesn't even matter for the court of appeals that much, right? It's what the evidence was at trial. So oh, what am I doing? I'm so focusing on some long-term amorphous thing rather than on the people sitting in front of me who need to be I mean, entertained isn't the right word. I'm not like- Edutained, edutained. Educated, exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's real. And it sucks to realize that sometimes because we want to make this about logos. Right. It's about pathos. It's about ethos. And the logos has to fit in to make them able to articulate their position. But you're right, you're right. And so actually your workflow is audience first, write something that resonates, that kicks ass. And then let logos come in. Imagine it from your opponent's standpoint. Where are the holes? Let's make sure those make sense. And let's, I call it the Eminem style of argument making. Did you ever see 8 Mile? Yes. Remember the final scene where he basically, his rap, his final rap battle is that he burns himself with every conceivable sick burn the other person can throw at him. And so when it's time for his opponent to get on and burn Eminem, there's nothing left because Eminem already burned himself. So like it's that Eminem treatment after you've got the narrative arc, then you go back and say, okay, what can they fuck with? Right. How do I allow for that? To me, that shift in workflow will yield such a better draft. And so then when you go in to do the delivery, it's going to be so much more brain friendly because you're not like, and this, and this, and this. And also do you pretty much across the board tell people do not write out what you are going to say because then you just fall into the map of memorizing. Yes. I mean, fall into the mindset of I have to memorize this because this is where it was really good. When I wrote it here, yeah. it was good. And now it's not yeah. good. I used to do that, but I don't anymore because some people are so wedded to it. But I do have a moment where we have to get off book. So it goes from a script to bullets, to off book or to PowerPoint slides. And I make that jump as soon as possible. Like you can't come to my sessions if you're still reading a document. It's not even, you don't come and reschedule. Practice is huge. Important. It's huge. huge. And that is also something that when you're in the heat of trial, yeah. you often don't afford yourself that luxury of much practice because you're writing it two days before you're going to give it. And you're still you're writing this... about jury instructions and you're still doing your cross-examinations of the end of the government or whatever it is, or you're putting on your yeah. own witnesses because it's the defense case. So it's yep. practicing is something, but look, good trial lawyers, they pretty much know what they want to say in their closing yeah. long yeah. before the trial starts because that's how you construct your case. Oh, fascinating. Right? Fascinating. A good trial lawyer says, okay, here's ultimately what I want to say to those 12 people. And yes. here's what I need to get out of the cross-examinations of the government witnesses. And here's where I want to present witnesses or evidence, right? 
Yeah. You don't just show up at trial, do your best to poke holes in the government's case and then make up a story for closing. Absolutely not. So yeah, a lot of the thinking goes in way in advance. And way that's earlier. Where, that's where, yeah, you should have time to practice actually. But also who freaking wants to practice a 78 page document? Not me. No one. Like, of course you're not practicing. Jesus Christ. You'll get gray hair while you're practicing. I would have a lot more fun if I could stand up in front of a jury and instead of worrying about whether I'm going to say every word or what I'm going to forget to say, if I could come in there with a bit more of that confidence and like, yes, I've got this. Do you know what my favorite mantra? Yeah. Yes. You know, my favorite mantra is for that actually is I have a million of them, but the one that I love that I just heard in my head is I trust myself to say what needs to be said. Oh, that's good. And I turn into a little jingle. I'm like, I trust myself to say what needs to be said. And I march up there okay. and I'm feeling it because we've been doing this for so long, dude. Like nobody knows it better than we do. That's the beauty of being in our like middle age. We're full of power and knowledge. Right. And this is like my 29 year old public defender self who still lives inside of me, unfortunately, she's there. And she's saying, oh, you're going to forget the most important point. You're going to forget the thing that yeah. actually the jury needs to hear for your client, for you to yeah. win. You know, yeah. that little voice. Yeah. I don't know why it's still there, but she's still there. Well, but she gets to be involved in the process. In fact, she may be the one that you talked to the day before where you get out of a pink sticky pad and you go, okay, baby, what are the absolute points that I have to make so that you are happy with me when I leave? And she's going to give you three or four points of five. And you're going to go, okay, are they in here? Have I got them? Okay, we're good. You know what I mean? Like she may save your ass a couple of times. That's a good point. So we don't want to divorce these parts of ourselves. We want to bring them in, but we cannot let them drive the bus. Don't let the pigeon drive the bus. I love those books. Remember that book? They're the best. They're the best. So listen, I could talk to you all day because I think you're the, I think you're just the bomb, but I am curious to see what happens as you really start to ponder integration and notice where you're splintering your personality and girding loins. And when you're able to relax and be your authentic, easy to connect with high charisma, great storytelling self, just notice where am I splintering and what stories am I telling myself that is causing the splintering I love that. of self. I love that. That's your big homework. Thank you so much. This is incredible. You are incredible. I just feel so lucky to learn from you. And one of the things I love about middle age, like you said, is this idea that it's also okay to still be learning. I I had a moment of, oh my gosh, at this stage of my career, I shouldn't be talking to a speech and communications coach about closings. I should have it down. That's crazy. That's crazy. That's bullshit. It's bullshit. It is bullshit. That's exactly right. We can always be better. And there's this myth that somehow there's a certain group of people that have it all figured out in life. And they that's yeah, a myth. don't. They're pretending. This reminds life. me, my, my <laughs> best friend growing up, her mom was like super religious. And she'd be like, that's the thing about the devil. The devil will tell you, you are not enough and you have no business being in that room. And then when you get confidence and you march in that room, the devil's going to be like, who do you think you are? And I don't believe in the devil, but I believe in the ego. Yeah. And that is what the ego is always doing. Like, how dare you think you're all that in a bag of chips? And then when you're like, okay, I'll play small. It's like, well, what's the matter with you? Why do you act so small? Like it's quiet that ego. 
focus on connecting with the people that matter and let your light shine through my sister. Thank you so much, my dear. This was so wonderful. (laughs) Bye. Thank you. Love her. My hope is that as you listen to this, you begin to understand what I know in my bones to be true. No one, not even the rock stars who have shit figured out, really has it figured out, myself included. We're all just experimenting. We're all just feeling around in the darkness. And my hope for you, like Jess, is that you identify some opportunities for growth and you try something new. Just see what happens. Life is too short to stick only to what you've always known or done. So your homework assignment this week is to try one new technique, something you learned from this conversation. Give it a shot, see what happens. And if listening to this, you think, I want to level up with Bronwyn. I want to work with Bronwyn and I'm ready to invest in myself as a communicator. Let's do it. I just recently launched a power hour coaching offering, which is a standalone hour an opportunity to work with me. You send me all your speaking samples. I watch them, listen to them, critique them. And then we sit down, you and I over Zoom. And for an hour, I share everything I think that you could do to level up. And it's a single shot. I usually do sessions that are like five, six sessions long, but I've been having so much success with people in single shot sessions that I decided, what the heck? So if that's interesting for you, this is not for the podcast. This would be for your ears only. I can send you pricing information. Just reach out to me, Bronwyn at bronwyncommunications.com and I will give you all the scoop. And if you love the idea of experimenting with new techniques, you really need to get on my email list. Every Monday, I send out a thought experiment designed to help you become your most powerful self and speak from that place of power. So head over, bronwyncommunications.com forward slash subscribe. And please let me know how it's going with your experiments this week. Tag me in social media. I'm on Instagram at bronwynsf. I'm on LinkedIn forward slash bronwyn. I'm all the places. And as always, thank you for being here. Shine on. We need your light.